This week on the show, we have NetBSD 8.2 available, Nextcloud and OpenBSD. We have more X11 screen locking for you, more and secure. NetBSD and Risk OS running in parallel on one machine. We cover the community feedback about switching to BSDs in this episode and more in this episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 345, Switchers to BSD, recorded on the 8th of April 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. Uh, we hope this podcast finds you well these days and um, you have all the supplies that you need. You're staying inside and you're uh, good and healthy and we supply the BSD news uh, for you. This is our service, basically, since uh, forever. And uh, the same this week. We have a little special touch this time, uh, but we'll get to that a little later. So first, we start with the headlines, because it's NetBSD's 8.2 release. Yep. Uh, so here we have a post by Maya Renash uh, saying the third release in the NetBSD 8 uh, tree is now available. And this release includes all the security fixes in NetBSD-8 up until this point and other fixes deemed important, including uh, fixed a regression in booting on some older CPUs on x86, uh, improved the Hyper-V Gen 2 virtual machine frame buffer support, uh, various security fixes to their built-in HTTPD, uh, improvements to the IEXG driver, um, EFI boot, they've added TFTP support, fixed issues on machines uh, that have many different memory segments, and improved the graphics mode logic to work on even more machines. They also fixed various kernel memory info leaks. Uh, I think that's their, based on that K-leak uh, paper and work that they've done earlier last year. Updated the version of XPAT, uh, fixed some USB issues on the AMD Ryzen platform, and enhanced their support for XHCI to version 3.10. Um, they now accept root device specification uh, in the format of name equals label uh, instead of just uh, device names. And added uh, multi-boot 2 support to all their x86 bootloaders uh, so they can be chain loaded and so on. They also fixed uh, a CVE for key negotiation for Bluetooth, improved the Nouveau, which is the open source NVIDIA driver, and limit the supported devices and fix some firmware loading problems. The Radeon driver fixed the loading of the firmware for the Tahiti class cards, and they fixed uh, stopped using an obsolete DNSSEC look-aside setting uh, in Bind. Oh, okay. That seems like a decent release. Uh, of course, there are more changes with more detailed uh, in the uh, changes uh, overall in the change log. I also like the comments down there on this blog post here. <laughs> Yay, as long as there is no system D in the change log, I will gladly use it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so congratulations, NetBSD, on another uh, point release. And uh, yeah, people should uh, check it out, update their systems, and uh, report back how it went. Okay, then next we're switching a little bit uh, to OpenBSD and the things that many people these days need, a Nextcloud instance. So this is an article, or more like a how-to, how you can set this up on OpenBSD. And, uh, well, for the people who have never heard about what Nextcloud is, Nextcloud and OpenBSD are com 
complementary to one another, they write. Uh, Nextcloud is an awesome, secure and private alternative for proprietary platforms, whereas OpenBSD forms the most secure and solid foundation to serve it on. Uh, setting it up is the best way, uh, in the best way, sorry, in the best way isn't hard, especially using this step-by-step -step tutorial. Uh, they have a little preface here. When this tutorial was initially written, uh, things were different. Well, in many ways. Uh, the OpenBSD port relied on PHP 5.6 and there was no package updates available. Uh, but the port improved, hats off to Gonzalo, and package updates were introduced to the stable branch with hats off for, uh, to Soline. A uh, rewrite of this tutorial was long overdue. Right now it's written for 6.6 stable and will be updated once 6.7 is released. And if you have any questions, definitely uh, reach out. Okay, on to the installation. Uh, first, you install OpenBSD using the install wizard. I guess we have covered this many, many times in many different ways. So that's is fairly straightforward by now. Let's switch to step two, packages. So you need the following packages. Nextcloud, of course, obviously. Uh, then they chose Postgres as the backing database. So PostgreSQL-Server and... Uh, oh, no client. Okay, so, so just the server parts. Uh, then PHP-PDO underscore PGSQL for connecting PHP to Postgres. And then Peckle73-Redis and Redis itself. So these are also the connecting components. Okay, once you have that... There's a ambiguity in the package uh, versions, but you can resolve that um, with the latest version that you have at this point. And then you start uh, doing uh, three soft links uh, from basically the PHP dash version string to um, use a local bin PHP so that you don't have to uh, put in the version all the time and just need to follow the sim links. Okay, then the database setup is basically switching to the underscore PostgreSQL user. This is the unprivileged user in OpenBSD for the Postgres database. Uh, you create a home directory for this one or a data directory for the database to live in in var Postgres uh, data. Then you run initDB on this file with the Postgres user and um, UTF-8 encoding and the password, of course, and the uh, algorithm. Then, after you've in, uh, initialized the Postgres database, you start it using RCCTL. You enable this first so that it gets started by uh, the next reboot. And you start the database for this current uh, session. And then you set uh, your PSQL-U Postgres, so you connect to your database and set a password. Create a database for your Nextcloud instance, so that's uh, where the files will live or the SQL that you're going to run in a little while. Uh, you create the Nextcloud user with an encrypted password, of course. Pick a different one than this one in the uh, tutorial, of course. Uh, and then you grant all privileges on the database Nextcloud to Nextcloud. Uh, then you quit PSQL. And step four is uh, enabling the PHP extensions. Uh, that can be run in a simple, well, fairly simple shell loop, uh, in a for loop to run over all the uh, etc php 73sample files and then uh, re uh, do a soft link to those. Yeah, so that's easier to do in a for loop. Then you make a couple changes in php.ini or in php-73ini, which is basically the same as the php.ini now. Change a couple lines. This is fairly straightforward so that you raise the memory limit a little bit and uh, make the server a little bit more secure. Save and exit this, and then you run uh, RCCTL again to enable php73 FPM. 
uh, and start this, of course, as well for the current session. Same, you do this for our Redis. You enable it and start it. Uh, web server, you use, of course, OpenBSD HTTPD, uh, which is change rooted, of course. And uh, that way, you need to make sure that host names can be resolved and TLS certificates can be verified from within the change root, of course. And uh, this is simply uh, done with a couple install commands. Then you use the Acme client, of course, to obtain your certificate for the domain that you've chosen. And there's an example config file in case you want to look that up. And then you download the sample config. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They provided a sample configuration for HTTPD, so you don't have to type it all in. Then you RCCTL uh, HTTPD, of course, enabling and starting it. And then the next cloud part is also not too complicated. Uh, you create your in your var www nextcloud instance. You uh, create uh, a file can underscore install in all caps to uh, allow the installation of Nextcloud. Yeah, that's the security feature that stops you uh, a fresh install from having random people hit it on the internet. You have to, in the file system, create that file, and then it knows that, oh, I should allow the web browser to uh, start configuring it. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, there's a, a config file. You put a couple lines in, and that's good to go. Mm -hmm. And then you set up the cron tab uh, so that uh, Nextcloud can do its background bookkeeping and now you have a next cloud server yeah excellent safe and secure on openbsd and ready for sharing files and all the other services that Nextcloud provides okay uh we're already in the news roundup here this is nice uh we found a nice article about x11 screen locking a secure and modular approach yes so this is over on these blog and uh, they mention, you know, for years they've been using the X screensaver uh, as the default screensaver, but they recently learned about X secure lock and are reevaluating their screen saving requirements. Uh, so they made a little list here. So this, the screensaver should turn on and uh, lock on after some configurable amount of time. Uh, the screensaver should lock when I press a certain hotkey. The screensaver should lock before my machine suspends, so it's already locked when it unsuspends. Uh, it should do authentication via PAM. Uh, it should be configurable using XSET, uh, and it should uh, forget to tell SSH agent keys on locking. Oh, mm -hmm. oh no, it tell, I think it, it should tell the SSH agent to forget all the keys when it locks the machine, is, I think is what they meant. So they're not in memory anymore. They also would like to be able to disable the screensaver when giving a presentation easily. Oh, yes. <laughs> Classic. And the screensaver should display a pretty demo. <laughs> when I just use X screensaver, they have a number of issues. They say, uh, locking before suspend was not so easy. Uh, they had to hack using either XAuth as root or additional helper scripts trapping signals in order to actually uh, lock before a suspend. Getting SSH agent to forget keys required a small but additional script. And sometimes X screensaver got stuck, so I had to kill it from a TTY to get back into my machine. Uh, and also their Excel biff uh, managed to pop up over top of X screensaver, kind of defeating the privacy point of having a screensaver. After some unsuccessful fiddling with XSS lock and X auto lock, I settled down on a neutral set. 
So we have X secure lock for screen locking and spawning the X screen saver demos. Uh, X idle to spawn X secure lock after you know your machine is idle. Uh, X bind keys uh, to trigger X idle when you press a hotkey, or and ACP ID uh, for triggering X idle on lid close. Uh, note that none of this requires systemd, dbus, or anything else that isn't you know X11 and has been around for 25 years. Uh, so they have a quick example of how they put it together. They use a script called run x secure lock, which is spawned from their x init rc, which checks if its argument is lock, then it uh, dumps the keys out of ssh uh, and says, you know, blank the screen after 900 seconds, which is 15 minutes, you know, set what the password prompt uh, will be, which saver, uh, screen saver they want to use, uh, you know, if they want to reset on auth close and so on. And that runs X secure lock. And then they use X idle uh, to run this script uh, if the machine is idle uh, for 10 minutes. So this runs X idle uh, when you log in with a timeout of 10 minutes and tells it to spawn uh, the script with the lock argument. So it will run X secure lock after forgetting all of its SSH agent keys. X secure lock then spawns a random X server demo. Uh, there's no support for cycling the demos, but you could trigger the dialoging close it or, you know, change the script, whatever you want to do. Then they also used uh, xbind key source and set x set s activate. Uh, so when they press insert, it will uh, activate their screensaver. And they say they used to use the pause key for triggering the screensaver, but their uh, Lenovo T480 doesn't have a pause key anymore. <laughs> so they're using insert now. And then they use ACP ID uh, to trigger x idle automatically. Uh, when the, the lid is closed. So they say, and note how simple this is as root and doesn't require getting X11 credentials or any complex IPC. Uh, and then to disable XIDLE, they can just do X set S off and the timeout is configurable at runtime using X set S and some number of seconds. This should uh, satisfy all my requirements and is a cleaner setup than they had before. Cool, yeah, this is what you want to have. It's a little bit of uh, uh Typing, but not too much for the script. Well, basically setting a bunch of environment variables before starting the screensaver to configure it. Yeah, and then the uh, the little handler you set so you can press a button so to enable it. Very nice. Next, we found an article about NetBSD and Risk OS running in parallel. So here in this blog post, uh, they write that I have been experimenting with running two systems at the same time on the RK3399 system on chip. Uh, it all began when I figured out how to switch to the A72 CPU for RISC OS. When the switch was done, the A53 CPU just continued to execute code. Okay, my first thought, why not give it something to do? My first step was to run some small programs. It worked. The second thing was switching that CPU to ARCH32 and launch RISC OS on that CPU. It worked quite well, but I can't really see the meaning on running two RISC OSs. I decided that NetBSD would be the ideal system to run. So technical details follow. As mentioned, the system boots up at the same time. Some units in the SOC need to be shared. Most important, the GIC. Which is the generic interrupt controller. Yeah, right. Uh, with that uh, GIC, <laughs> I do config uh, in the RISC-OS and give affinity to NetBSD for some devices. The console is based on a simple frame buffer and stores its frame buffer at a fixed physical address. 
my RiscOS client, pulse that area and create a sprite uh, with the RiscOS native bitmap format with that area as a buffer. The keyboard works with another shared area. When a key is pressed in RiscOS, I look up the scan code and write that to the keyboard RAM area. As one does. Um, yeah, uh, things on the to-do list here uh, is the mouse driver and network driver with access to the network from the RiscOS. Uh, boot NetBSD from within the RiscOS and uh, copy and paste between the systems. Yeah, that would be nice. Okay, they uh, provided some screenshots that uh, you can find in our show notes. So this seems like a nice project and so far doesn't look uh, like it's not too bad. Yeah. Uh, so just a description here for the screenshots. The first one shows some great creative programs in RiscOS. Uh, the Ovation Pro, a fantastic DTP program, desktop publishing, ah, commercial available in, uh, in the Pink Store. Pink Store. Okay. The other program is Draw, a vector drawing application present in the RiscOS ROM and therefore can be run uh, without a disk. Okay. Not bad. And the second screenshot is showing uh, a NetBSD, a busy NetBSD session uh, from where the mod keys uh, first worked. So it's interesting. I'm one of these machines that has kind of two different CPUs in it, uh, running two different OSs at the same time and making them cooperate is a, a very different uh, approach compared to what you do with a typical like BMC or something where you have a big CPU doing all the work and a small CPU that's basically there to reset the other one when it misbehaves or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, multiprocessing in a different way. But yeah, it's really interesting to think of, uh, you know, using the smaller one as not really like a real-time thing, but something a little closer to that. Uh, and then having the big one do the other lifting or just, uh, you know, separating kind of the, the bigger tasks from the little ones. It's like a, a mathematical core processor in the olden days. Like this one is just doing math stuff. This other one is doing the important stuff. I don't know. So maybe that could be a, a thing. <laughs> maybe we'll find a follow-up post uh, in the future where there's more uh, details or how it went. So uh, we'll stay uh, tuned on this. All right. This is the special part of this episode. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or well, a month by now, um, we covered a story about switching from Linux to BSD. Uh, JT and I asked for community feedback as to their thoughts on the matter while Alan was out that week recovering. So this will give him an opportunity here to chime in with his thoughts as well. Uh, the first one, so we got a couple of people uh, sending emails and replies to us. Thanks for that. And the first one uh, that we have listed here is Jamie about dumping Linux for BSD. He writes that, uh, hi guys, uh, since you asked for it, here it is. Oh, here we go. First, I totally disagree with you about the positive way being the easiest. Sadly, people are wired to more uh, easily remember the bad, not the good. You can and should put a positive spin on it or try to mask it some, but someone is more likely to remember the one time you had to recompile the kernel for Wi-Fi and not the hundred times they saved uh, their buddy's files from their broken Windows box. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with that out of the way, I will agree that it would do us all well to tone down on the friendly fire. Linux people and BSD people are on the same side and just have different philosophies on how to accomplish their goals of freedom, and that's okay. Uh, that honestly is my major suggestion on getting converts. Remember, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing in the freedom dimension, and with that, it's not a contest. Uh, when we bump into the place where BSD is better, we show off that workload. Same for Linux. We want everyone to succeed because it improves uh, our overall goal and in the longer run, monocultures are bad. 
My final thought here is on the licensing thing. I've always looked at it in a, a force and violence lens. The BSD license is the non-violent. You get more files, uh, no, not files, flies, with honey sorta approach. Uh, it's coming from Berkeley. It's like to call it the hippie approach. GPL is the militant approach of what we think you're all untrustworthy assholes who we will force you to be free or else. I personally believe in the MIT slash BSD approach and MIP, MIT license uh, my stuff, but both are valid and probably needed, honestly. Well, I'm starting to ramble, so uh, I'll just uh, say cheers, guys, and keep up the good work. Yeah, uh, so thanks for writing in, Jason. And yes, uh, I think you're right about the, you know, people remember the pain more than the the joyful moments. Yeah, somehow that, that sticks more than the, oh, the successes you had. It's, um, yeah, it may be wired this way. Uh, so next up, we have feedback uh, from Matt. Uh, Matt says, hi, all. On last week's show, although I guess it was two months ago now, <laughs> uh, you requested positive reasons to switch to BSD, so I thought I'd write in with one positive data point about the BSD community. I wrote an application I thought would be of use to others beyond just myself, so I started to think about distro packaging. Ubuntu seems to be the uh, largest in Mindshare these days, so I started the process of packaging it up for Debian. If you've never tried to package something for Debian before, it's uh, you know a little weird. <laughs> a little like being repeatedly told your princess is in another castle. <laughs> uh, while I was still in the midst of this, uh, a stranger filed a curious bug report against my project in which they indicated that their platform was FreeBSD. In investigating this, I realized that they were uh, in the process of packaging my application for FreeBSD. My application ended up being packaged and shipped in FreeBSD by this helpful stranger before I was even halfway through the process of getting it on Debian. For me, this interaction really showcased the generosity and friendliness of the BSD community. Okay, yeah, that's good feedback. I know different distros have different ways of getting code in or contributions, but yeah, this is a a general feedback that we get that uh, it's fairly straightforward to uh, create a port or have someone take care of a port uh, that's been submitted. Okay, then uh, we have Brad about Linux versus the BSDs. Uh, Brad writes here that, uh, hey, JT, Benedict, and Alan. JT, you were asking for how people talk about Linux versus BSD. I guess an excerpt of my original story would be how I dis discuss it. I have been doing Linux for almost 26 years. Interspersed with those are various other Unixes, Deck Unix, SunOS, BSDi, Solaris, AIX, HPUX, etc. So I was mostly running Debian Linux at home and Ubuntu at work. And then along came System D. Aside from the fact that it uh, shot 25 years of muscle memory, service foo start uh, became systemctl start foo to serve uh, Petering's hubris. XXX part of Unix is also broken concept, uh, by the way. Here, I'll fix it for you. Uh, only system D is buggy and broken, and there are several cases where the team closed valid bugs because they didn't want to fix it. And worst of all, they have a major case of mission creep. I heard an interview with Puttering in which he said that they wanted system D to, quote, own everything between the kernel and the application layer, unquote. Compared to FreeBSD, which has native ZFS, meaning that I can roll back an upgrade that goes sideways, I can run the vast majority of apps that I did on Linux. Uh, the only app that has or had no equivalent for my wife was TV Time, a V4L TV watching app. She didn't like any of the BSD alternatives. Okay. Uh, plus, the BSD community seems more mature than the Linux community. Fewer flame wars, more cooperation, uh, fewer cries of RTFM or ignored requests. 
But as I tell people, I'm not going to try to force you to change. I'll extol the virtues of BSD, or whatever subject du jour, uh, but never try to force the issue. You do too, and I'll do mine. Uh, you do yours, and I'll do mine. Well, thanks for the feedback, Brad. Next, we got a, a long one here from MJ. He says uh, he enjoyed the show, uh, as always, but uh, to his why should you migrate from Linux to FreeBSD uh, was covered relatively poorly, apparently. Uh, they have a couple of points. They say Linux is fragmented. They say JT goes on to say this is not really so, that uh, variations are overwhelmingly about installed packages, and packages are all the same. Uh, though, you know, the 900 different versions of Debian uh, may still make your brain ache, but it's, you know, they are still just Debian with just different default packages and so on. Uh, you know, package managers, you know, that's a whole thing. <laughs> uh, and they talk about switching from NetBSD to FreeBSD and how ports and packages are basically the same. That's not actually true. Package source is quite a bit different from ports, even just where the files end up uh, and, and some of it. The, the concepts are similar, but, you know, I, I imagine the, in the end, the differences are about as big as, you know, from aft to yum or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's different. You don't get the same result, uh, especially when config files are concerned. And then you have the issue with uh, different versions of the Linux kernel. It's like, well, yes, every distro is using a different kernel, and that's not the same thing. Uh, and so he said, uh, it's like saying you can take code from Darwin and run it on FreeBSD. It may have similar origins, but that's where the similarities end. I'm afraid your argument is wrong. Uh, they mostly talk about the fact that compilers use different macros. I didn't know there was a separate Debian Linux macro, but I suppose that might make sense. Uh, so their second point, they say that Linux has been hijacked. I think the original uh, author is drawing a long bow here, uh, but he just does raise relevant points and seems uh, to have been dismissed too easily. It's also a bad topic title when, in fact, it seems to mean that the Linux ecosystem uh, comprising useland and kernel. Um, the influence on the subsystems around the kernel are indeed a worry for people wanting choice. Um, the Red Hat IBM control of systemd is rather insidious. The scope creep of the project alone is astonishing, and so on. Um, I think the better example that I saw of that was some of the like the network subsystem stuff um, and where you know university or something is doing some research in the network stack and they have some interesting code to upstream and the maintainer happens to work for Google and Google's like well we did a slightly different implementation of that and we're going to use that in Linux we're not going to you know commit it for six or nine months uh, but we're not going to take your version either because uh, we're going to use ours even though you can't have ours right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Heard that before. Uh, and they also talked about uh, licensing problems. And they say licensing is like politics. We shouldn't discuss it in civil conversation. <laughs> uh, so then in their summary at the end, they say, uh, so why I would suggest using one of the BSDs over Linux is you're getting an entire OS. Uh, you can make build world, ports and packages are integrated and so on. Uh, you get a lightweight kernel. Linux's bloat. I don't know. The FreeBSD kernel is pretty big, but um, you have great documentation. You don't have systemd. And, you know, uh, at his job, there are FreeBSD shop with some Linux VMs. And uh, I don't need to sell uh, ice to an Eskimo. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay. That's also some valid points here in the feedback. 
Thanks for that. And I think JT had some more responses to this feedback, but um, he put them in a paste bin that disappeared. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Too bad. Uh, then we go with the next one uh, with Ben, uh, with feedback for this episode, or to JT specifically. Um, ben writes, Hi, BSD Now team. I just wanted to say well done to, the J- uh, to JT on this episode. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Um, I found JT to be well-prepared, articulate, and unbiased, all of which are great characteristics for a podcast. Well, now you're telling me? Okay. Um, please don't read into this that I'm saying you other hosts are not these things. I just wanted to pass on my congrats to JT. Please come back on. Okay. Yeah, that's direct feedback to him. Thanks for that as well. And the last that we have about this is um, why you should migrate everything to BSD from Henrik. Henrik writes, Hey, JT, Benedict, and Alan. A couple of weeks ago, you asked the community for feedback on an article about switching everything from Linux to BSD. The short answer is you shouldn't. The slightly longer answer is that they are both great and have different strengths and you should run the operating system that is right for your needs. So if you are the only one in the team that knows BSD, it might not be the right tool for the job. I largely agree completely with JT's points of view. Uh, The article don't really get the point across because the people that would be on the fence would have stopped reading long before the actually valid reasons for changing came on. Uh, I have been running Linux, mostly Debian, for as long as I can remember, but have slowly moved almost everything over to BSD. Now, he's the... Now, okay. Um, This transition started when I upgraded my fiber connection from 100 megs to 10 gigs. Oh, wow. With OFC. Which OFC? Made my firewall servers a more interesting target. This resulted in that my Debian firewall from time to time died under the constant attacks. It never got compromised, but died for various other reasons. I then installed the open, an OpenBSD and configured PF on the same hardware and didn't experience any problems with the attacks anymore, even though the amount didn't increase at all. I have since then installed another OpenBSD box, configured CARP, and a lot of other stuff. I then started to play with ZFS, first in my Debian KVM hypervisor, and then thought it would uh, try out FreeBSD instead. So I built a data storage server with FreeBSD on it and moved all data from the now two KVM machines to the FreeBSD and shared the data over NFSv4 on a dedicated 802.1x VLAN. Huh. After this, more and more of my systems magically got converted from Debian to BSD. Can't really exactly explain why, but I just feel that I get more flexibility, new packages, and faster response times when I do on my Debian counterparts, even though it's the same software running. I think we might it, this might be because uh, the overhead is smaller on the BSDs than on the Linuxes. Uh, the only thing still running Debian exclusively is my KVM hypervisor. I have moved a lot of stuff to jails, but the things that still needs the hypervisor is running on Linux. Thank you, Henrik. All right. Now, after this feedback section, it's time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, We found a couple items that are uh, of interest to you, hopefully. Uh, The first is SSH copy ID is now included. Ah, this is from Dragonfly BSD. Yep. Uh, So they've uh, basically built the SSH copy ID utility into Dragonfly 5.8 and in current. Uh, So on those releases, that tool is just built in instead of having to be installed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. Of course, you can do it uh, without SSH copy ID, but it's just much easier than uh, copying and doing the cat and, pay and pipe and stuff. Uh, so yeah. Yep. Uh, and then OpenSense has a quick reliability release, uh, especially with uh, doing the impossible providing VPN for road warriors and whatnot. Um, so they uh, 
fixed the matching group common name case insensitivity problem, adding a pluggable log format parsing facility, updating the comments uh, in the OpenSSL config file, uh, fix missing default gateway switch on the link up event, uh, some firewall fixes like uh, flush the priority selection uh, to the debug rules and do not escape internal URLs, adding virtual IPv6 pool for mobile clients uh, for IPsec. They fixed the help text regarding routes uh, on OpenVPN uh, and added the Sunny Valley and Moonin plugin updates. Oh, good. Oh, and uh, fixed the Wake on LAN uh, plugin so that you can wake your router up remotely. Ah, good. In case it ever goes to sleep. Well, I think it's more you use this plugin to wake up other computers. You leave your router yeah, on all the time. Right. <laughs> but, you know, if you turn your computer off when you go to a conference, which is a reasonable thing to do, you don't expect to need it, but then suddenly you need it, you can connect to your router and say, hey, wake up that computer in my basement. Oh, that's a good use case. So good to have mm -hmm. this in uh, OpenSense. Uh, done with this. We are now... Uh, ah, this is a nice thing. Uh, we found a collection of pre-built BSD cloud images this is uh, over at bsd-cloud-image.org. So they have the major BSD ones, I would say, FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, and Dragonfly in their latest versions. And you can just download them in QCOW2 image formats. And I guess they will be updated once a new release is coming out. Yeah, well, I noticed um, that it's FreeBSD is still 11.2 and 11.3 is out. Oh, right. I didn't catch the Dragonfly article, but it sounds like 5.8 is almost out. And we just talked about NetBSD 8.2, although, you know, it's only been a couple of days. So the NetBSD one, I could definitely forgive them for. Okay, so they, yeah, they get mostly updated images for you. Uh, these unofficial images, they write, are tested on OpenStack and NoCloud with the Vert Lightning uh, software package. Uh, since they integrate cloud-init, should support all the main cloud providers. Uh, and if you click the details thing, they do actually link to GitHub where they have their scripts that do all this. Uh, and so you can also make suggestions or fixes or whatever as well. Oh, yeah. Or add your favorite BSD that's not on the list at the moment. Although all the major ones are. But if you wanted to, you know, make it, uh, for example, work with FreeBSD snapshots, if you want to, you know, run head in the VM. Yeah, or whatever it might be, some other... BSD that uh, is maybe a desktop distribution in case you want to run that in the cloud, whatever it might be. Uh, so uh, our last item here is more for the terminal type folks, and you know you're among them. Uh, an instant terminal sharing uh, way using uh, Tmux, of course. It's Tmate, Tmate.io. And sometimes you want to share um, the screen or your terminal with a colleague or with a student, maybe showing something. And so you can both see what the other person is typing. And that's what Teammate is doing. It's basically a fork of Tmux. Uh, Teammate and Tmux can coexist on the same system, so you don't have to give up the one for the other. Uh, and they provide various packages for all the BSDs, a couple of uh, popular Linux distributions, as well as macOS. And uh, you basically, once it installed, launch Teammate. And then you should see um, basically a screen where you can connect to each other. And we get a little URL, well, not so little. And this allows others to join your terminal session. And all users see the same terminal content at the same time. 
And this is like for pair programming or where two people share the same screen, uh, but have different keyboards. So this might come in handy if you're doing some kind of, you know, training or teaching or let's, hey, let's meet on this server and I show you the error that I got, something like this. So yeah, try it out, check out the website and uh, maybe it will come in handy for you. All right, uh, this is our uh, actual feedback and questions section. Remember the one we did earlier? Thanks again for people who keep sending us uh, feedback and questions for this segment. Uh, remember everything uh, that you want to have us cover or at least mention or have a, a topic, a little article that you found. Maybe maybe you wrote it yourself. Send all of this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then it will appear in a future episode like the ones we did earlier. The first one that we have is from Alice uh, about manually verifying signature files for package uh, packages. So PKG packages. Uh, Alice writes, thank you very much for the great podcast. You're welcome. After using Linux for many years, thanks to OpenSense, I recently discovered the BSD world and it's really exciting. Ah, good. Now you would be so kind and help me answer one package question. Sure. I have one OpenSense box that can't have internet access and I need to install OS-WireGuard plugin on it. I managed to do it by fetching OS-WireGuard plugin and all dependencies on a different internet-connected OpenSense box and installing it over shell on the offline box. The only thing I don't know or don't know yet is when I try to check signature of those packages on my Linux box. Ah, yes. Uh, so we tried the uh, SHA-256 sum uh, with a couple of uh, removing some uh, stuff from it. Uh, and checking that signature and piping it again to verify it uh, on packages in the SIG files that are downloaded from package.opensense.org uh, to verify that the fetched files on my USB stick were not replaced by something I don't want. Uh, based on my research, this would work, but I always get verification failure message. Could you help, please? So what are you verified? Like, my impression of the way that the package signing in in PKG worked was the the actual digest file that's part of the the index of the, the package repo is the only file that's actually signed and it just contains the the hashes and so to check the hash of a particular file you'd have to extract that database you would verify the signature on the package database itself the whole thing the digest file from the package repo. Uh, that's the thing you can verify with the signature. And then its content just has whether what's the, what the correct hash is. I don't think the signature file, like each individual um, package is itself not signed. Hmm. But you have bash.txz.sig. Where is that coming from? Yeah. Oh, maybe it's just the example. Yeah. Um, but I, yes, I think the the problem uh they're running into is that the um each individual package itself is not signed or oh okay hold on in the open sense repo it appears there is a dot sig file for every package i is that normally there in freebsd i don't think it is uh in which case if if open sense is doing their own thing i have no idea um how they're doing that yeah, if you have multiple pipes with these, there's sometimes the way where you like uh, removing the backslash n or not will definitely change the signature, so you do get different uh, checksums. Uh, you have a tr 
in there to remove the backslash n and then followed by a set uh right but i don't think that's the problem don't think so yeah because that's usually what's happened oh you forgot the backslash n and it's a completely different signature then well so they're they're removing that from this the checksum itself not from the content of the file mm. yeah so in a regular freebsd package repo uh, in the root, there is a file called digests.txz, and it is just the hashes of all the files. And I think that the content of that itself is what is signed, not each individual package. And so there's no .sig file for each individual file. So I don't know what OpenSense is doing differently, uh, but the answer is something. Um, so I don't know how you verify their things individually. Do we have a different suggestion how you would do it on this uh, offline box? Instead of doing the USB stick thing? Not really. Um, so he could definitely build those packages manually, right? On that box, on the target machine. Getting the source files. On the Linux box, you could run PKG itself and have it do the fetching. And it would, I think it, yes, it verifies the, the signature and everything uh, at the end of the download. So if you just used... Uh, package install capital F, which is fetch only, uh, you could have it download the, um, you know, bash5.txz uh, and verify its signature on a Linux box by running, you know, the package tool on it pointed to the right repo. Uh, but I'm sure that's not the answer they're looking for. <laughs> or like self using ports collection, just make install, make configure the usual old way. The, the problem there is that you have ports depends on being able to download right you ah you can't get out yeah hmm. <laughs> so in regular freebsd you'd have to download the digest.txz and get the right hash out of it and then verify that it's the one that the file had uh for OpenSense, i don't know um i'm guessing if they have a .sig file for each thing it might actually be expecting the input to be the whole package file, not just the the SHA two fifty six of it. Hmm. Could be, yeah. I don't, I, I don't actually know what the OpenSense people are doing. I've never actually seen this before. What is inside one of these .sig files? Yeah, it's a full signature, so it's probably of the whole .txz file, not of just the hash. So what you have might be right, except for you just want to feed the whole bash.txz into that OpenSSH or OpenSSL command rather than just the checksum of it. Uh -huh, okay. Uh, that might solve the problem. Okay, yeah. Otherwise, ask the uh, the folks themselves. The OpenSense, because yeah, yeah, what they're doing is different uh, from what FreeBSD does by default. That's uh, <laughs> that's all we can help you with. I uh, hope that gets you somewhere. Try the, 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 the whole file, not just the individual SIG file. Okay, um, thanks for this question. Hopefully your uh, adventures in the BSD land uh, will continue. And uh, next up is uh, Shodi with uh, something about the YubiKey. Uh, goes like this. Ah, in the latest episode, 
latest-ish. Uh, there's a section about security or encryption, and you mentioned YubiKey as an example of a USB key. I've been studying password managers and USB keys, and I'm wondering why you'd mention YubiKey for a number of reasons. As I understand it, YubiKey is closed source, while NitroKey and LibramKey is open source, and these open source products seem to be shouted down because of all the press about YubiKey. I figure there may be a good reason YubiKey is top dog. If there is, I would love to know what it is. Thanks for the great show. I don't actually know. Uh, you know, our, our friend Benno works at YubiKey now, <laughs> but that's about all I know. We got one of the free-ish keys um, at EuroBSDCon last year, right? Yes. I know that the YubiKey software, like the YubiKey configure and some YubiKey settings are in the ports collection. So that's um, right there for you. Not sure about uh, the the other two keys you mentioned. It's probably popularity and the po more popular one thing is that the higher the chance that you get the, the software all supported to uh, BSDs. But that doesn't mean that the other keys are uh, less value or less secure or anything. It's just YubiKey is very popular and I've heard it more than the other two. But if the other twos are um, doing the same thing for you, then by all means use those. This this is your personal choice. It was just our um First thing when it comes to mind, like what kind of crypto key can I get? Maybe you'll find uh, some comparison on the web where you can see uh, what the different features are. Definitely having open source uh, is a good thing, um, but the YubiKey folks are fairly um, responsive as far as I could get it uh, about um, things. Of course, it's a security key. They can only open it so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, Use what, what works for you, and the other keys are definitely also working quite well. Okay, uh, thanks for this feedback. And uh, uh, the next and last is Mike with a site for hashes from old disks. Uh, disks meaning, of course, the usual BSD distros that have been out. What? They, they mean physical, like CD-ROMs. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Right, the the ones you, you can touch. Um <laughs> So Mike writes, uh, you mentioned in episode 333, uh, an archive project that is collecting hashes from old disks. Uh, please let me know a link to that initiative. I could not find any info on this mentioned in the show notes. Uh, we did some digging and we linked the answer, of course, also in the show notes here. So here we give you a big list of FreeBSD ISOs and their hashes. And uh, let's see, where does it start? Right. So for example, the FreeBSD 1.0 release i386 disk1.iso, uh, and they have the size and hashes from some different places. Uh, for example, the Walnut Creek archive copy seems to have a different uh, SHA-256 than the copies uh, on the FTP archive mirror. Uh, so you need some other people's input to figure out which one of them might be right. Uh, or if we're end up check something slightly something slightly different because um, one of these sets is the physical cds versus the iso images and maybe we're not creating the iso exactly right uh, or whatever but uh yes there's basically each version and uh what the different checksums are okay there are definitely a couple of blanks and so yes if you have physical disks or whatever uh they'd be very interested in knowing what Uh, your copy checksums as. Mm -hmm. Yep, there are instructions how you can get those and uh, they welcome, of course, contributions to this list. Uh, 
Okay, then thanks for this question. And that pretty much wraps up this week's episode of BSD Now. Thank you for listening. Definitely stay inside for a little while longer uh, and definitely uh, keep yourself uh, yeah, safe from harm, of course, and any kind of harm. And uh, wait for us and until next week when we have a new episode out. 